So if we've got our Bibles, let's turn to Philippians. We're going to begin a brand new series called A Life Worth Living. Uh, and uh, just exploring uh, the, the way I want to, to look at this is it's really in terms of issues of mental health in a way, but, but in a broader sense in that the, we, we live with voices in our heads. We all have little narratives that run. And, uh, and, and believe it or not, you're all in the midst of a story that you're all running at the moment. And, uh, and you're in that story, and, and how you interpret that story and what's going on in your life is kind of your narrative. And, uh, and, and sometimes those narratives get way out of sync. Sometimes you see people as hostile, and they're not hostile at all. Sometimes you see issues that aren't really big issues, but they dominate the narrative, but they shouldn't, and you lose sense of the whole picture. So sometimes you face things that feel overwhelming, and, and they, you think they're going to consume you. Sometimes you're told, because of other voices that have been there in the past, that you're useless. See, I told you so. You're never going to make it. You're rubbish. You know, narratives. And all of you have them running right now as I speak. And, uh, and, and what I want to do is apply Philippians to those voices, to those narratives, because I believe that Paul sets out a narrative, a, a, a Christian narrative. And, and the letter to the Philippians gives us more insight than probably any other letter in the New Testament to the way that Paul thought. And I want us to engage with that, with this thought process and how Paul dealt with the setbacks. You see, the thing is, life is full of ups and downs. Uh, I was talking to someone a few weeks back, and they said, life's hard, and then you die. And, you know, and, and it's like, yep. We, we, we kind of relate to that. We understand that life you know, there are good things, but there are hard things and difficult things. And, 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 and many of us face these things. And, and, and the, the, the big issue, I remember someone talking about pastoral care. And they were saying the essence of pastoral care is not about supporting someone through a difficult situation, although that's part of it. But there's, they were saying the essence of pastoral care is helping someone understand how their faith relates to what they're going through right at this moment. How their belief in Jesus relates to what's taking place in their life. And that's what pastoral care is. It's a kind of discipleship. It's about learning to apply our relationship with Jesus to the difficult things as well as the good things that mark our lives. And the letter to the Philippians does this. It's, it's written to... Uh, a uh, uh, Roman colony, a little place called Philippi. If we, we throw this up. It was the, the first Jesus community in Eastern Europe. Paul had been trying to go and actually preach in Turkey, and he had traveled up through Turkey from, from the south coast, and he had found himself arriving at uh, the, the Aegean, on the, the Turkish coast, west coast, where you all go for your holidays. And, and, he, he had, and he wanted to go right. He wanted to go towards Istanbul and things. And we don't know how, but the Spirit of God stopped it happening. 
And so he's frustrated. And he was wondering, where, God, are you leading me to? What's happening? And he got an angelic visitation, which is useful. And this man appeared to him, a man of war from Macedonia, calling him over. And, and so he said, that's it. I have to take the gospel into Macedonia. And, and so he traveled to this place called Philippi. And, and Philippi was, was a very significant place in the Roman world. Do you remember Brutus who killed Julius Caesar at 2 Bruti? Well, Brutus had been part of a, a civil uprising against the guy that became Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus and his pal Mark Antony had defeated Brutus just here at Philippi. And the Roman armies that had defeated them had all been demobbed there because they didn't like having big armies hanging around. And they had all settled, uh, or a lot of them had settled in Philippi. So we're looking at the grandchildren of these hard battle-weary soldiers, lots of them, packing the city. And so this was a hardcore Roman city. And, and Paul had run into opposition as he had gone there, because as he proclaimed Jesus as Lord, now, now to us, that, that's just second nature, Jesus is Lord. But in Rome, if you proclaim Jesus as Lord, he was seen as an alternate to Caesar, who was proclaimed Lord. In fact, Caesar was described as Lord and Savior. And so when Paul stood up and said, Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, this crucified Savior, to these hardcore Roman veterans, this was outrageous. Not only outrageous, it was seditious. It was speaking against Rome, speaking against everything that they stood for. And, of course, it was their ancestors who had helped create the new empire through the victory over Brutus. So as Paul went to Philippi, he discovered resistance and even persecution. And, and, and this entire northern coast, there was this if issue of being a Christian and living out. And when Paul left, the Christians continued to fight against this. And, and dealing with the, the, the whole issue of, of living out their faith. And I'm sure there were days where it was tough. You know, days where somebody came back and said, another church leader has been thrown in prison or our kids haven't got into the school that they wanted to get into, or we're again being lied about. We, that must have been hard for the Christians. And, uh, and there must have been a sense of what is the point? What is the point? The, uh, there was an Oxford scientist who recently published a paper who said that they reckon in the next few decades they should be able to extend human life to 115 years. And I was reading about this in a newspaper article in the Times, and, um, and, and the, the writer was reporting on this. And he wrote this line. He said, in the future, scientists may be able to prolong life, but will it be worth living? So it's all great to get your life extended, but is it really going to be worth living? And as I said, life is hard and then you die. Why would we want to prolong it? And yet here in Philippians, Paul wants us to get a different narrative, 
a different narrative so that when we encounter tough stuff, when we encounter resistance, whether that's in terms of our personal life or our relationship with God, or, or whether that's just in terms of going about life, we will be able to apply our faith in an effective way that says, my life is worth living. And I know what my life is about. One of the things that I think a lot of us as Christians have, have, have struggled with, even in the, the, the last couple of decades, is really knowing what life's about. Is it about change, chasing that big pension in the nice house and the early retirement that used to happen? And uh, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that what it's about? Is that what we're defined by? Is it about raising a family? Is it about finding a partner on a dating app? What's life all about? What is the essence? What is to drive our lives? Paul wants us to understand that our story begins by understanding what it's about. And, and the letter to the Philippians has as its center, the central message. It tells us why life is worth living and what it's about. And you find that central message in a poem in chapter 2. It's one of the, the, the most famous parts of the New Testament, uh, where Paula says, let the same mind be in you as is in Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And he goes into this amazing poem. It was probably part of the worship of the early church, where he explains the idea that God became the servant of humanity in order to set us free from the sin that holds us. And, and, and this image, and, and then he said, this image is actually the model that has to shape our narrative. And all of Philippians is built around that central passage. Uh, I'm not actually going to preach on it. You'll be glad to hear. Uh, but one of the other pastors is. But that's the key, the foundation story. And everything else follows from that. And so when Paul opens up and he begins to introduce this letter, he opens up with these verses. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Paul starts with, and it's interesting to see some of the more modern translations, more recent translations, actually start, uh, replace the word servant with the word slave, which is actually the word that Paul uses. Paul starts with a declaration that Timothy and I are slaves. And, and again, slavery in the ancient world meant that you were part of a household. It's a strange concept for us to understand in our day and age, but, but slaves were often part of a household. And they were part of a household, but they existed to do the will of their master. And, and, and that's essentially what they were there for. And, and so Paul begins with this declaration, and he says, you know, I understand myself as being part of the household of God, and I am there to serve my master. That's how I understand my life, one of service. 
See, we're going to see over and over again the reiteration that if we become egocentric, if we get focused on ourselves and our own happiness and our own lives and our own achievements and our own things, our own issues, we will end up miserable. There's actually science to back this up, <laughs> secular studies of happiness, what makes happiness. You know what ranks really high up there with good health? is <laughs> altruism. Doing something for someone else. You're feeling miserable? Go and do something for someone else. Uh, I used to have a friend, and uh, whenever he was feeling miserable, he gave something away. <laughs> and uh, uh, Maybe that made him more miserable, but I don't know. But, but that, that was kind of the, the idea of altruism. But here, this is altruism uh, ad infinitum, where he's saying, I am a slave. I am serving my God, my master. Timothy and Paul, servants of God or slaves of our God. To the saints. This word saints is a, a, a strange word because we often think of people in stained glass windows or super holy people or super spiritual people. But Paul doesn't mean any of that. He just means people that are given over to God. You see, holiness meant something that was wholly dedicated towards God. And so the sense of being a saint was someone who was equally dedicated to God. So what he's saying is, I am a slave to my master, speaking to other people dedicated to that same master. Dedicated to being part of that same household where we live for our God. Again, it's a really interesting question to ask us. What kind of household do we live in? You know, I can imagine in a Roman household, if you had lots of servants, and Jesus often tells parables like this, where they're all doing their own thing and all serving their own agendas, it must have been chaos. Probably would have denoted rebellion. Here Paul provides us with this picture of people who are serving their God. And then he says this. He says, you see, when you get into a household where God is God, and he is recognized not just as Lord in name, but also in terms of the way that we live and the narrative that we tell ourselves and the way that we... So we're living for our Lord in the narratives that we run. He says, you will know grace and peace. This is a combination of two greetings. In, um, in Greek or Roman literature, often when you wrote a letter, uh, you, you'll notice that you start with who it's from. Uh, often when we used to write letters, I suppose we still write emails, you, you find out at the bottom who it was from. You'd have to go to the end. Well, was, in a Roman letter, you, you started at the top, so you said who it was from. And then you would often send a greeting, and in a Greek or Roman letter, you would say grace, which basically meant good fortune. And, uh, and, and it was saying, may you have good fortune, and good fortune will bring happiness. The, the word charis in Greek is the word grace. The word for joy is the word kara. So charis and kara. Charis leads to kara. That makes sense? <laughs> and, uh, and so we, we have this expression here. He's saying good fortune, and if you have good fortune, you have joy. And, and that was kind of how the Romans understood it. When Paul uses the word grace, he's talking about, may you know God blessing you. And out of that blessing, 
will come joy. You see, as you live with Jesus as your Lord, when you acknowledge God as your master and you live that way, you will know God's grace. You will know the grace. Now, that doesn't mean everything goes right, as we will see in a minute. In fact, as Paul writes this, he's in prison in Rome, which isn't a great place to be. But yet he knows God's grace, and he knows the joy that comes out of that. And then he uses the word peace, which is the way that a Hebrew would greet a person in a letter. And it simply means wholeness. And uh, and so what he's saying is, may you know God's blessing and wholeness in your life as you acknowledge him as your master. Then he introduces this theme, this great theme that we constantly come back to, which is, so what is the purpose? What is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of Paul and Timothy's ministry? What is to be the driver of our narrative? And in verse 3 through 6, he introduces us to this idea of making a difference to the lives of others. He's saying, may you, as you live for God, go out and make a difference to the lives of others. He says this, I thank my God every time I remember you in my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. You see, he was saying, I rejoice in the fact that you as the household of God are committed to making a difference in other people's lives. And that's actually the driver. That's actually the thing in our life is not how am I going to achieve happiness for myself? How am I going to get to that state of well-being? Or my, my, my daughter who went through a phase of real positive thinking was like, well, Dad, you know, you have to write down what you want and stick it underneath your pillow. And this sounds like magic. <laughs> and hope in the morning it's there, like what we used to do at Christmas. And, and, and that's what you have to do. You have to positively realize what you want. And and actually, that's the exact opposite of what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, you have to be thinking, how can I work for others? How can I serve others? How can I spend my life in order to see transformation in others? And he's saying, I thank God. I get full of joy because you get this. You understand that being driven by the service of others is at the essence of what it means to be God's people. And also, you know, at the heart of how we become robust in our thinking and our life narratives in serving others. But this service of others isn't about us going out and then trying to make a difference. There's a big difference in what Paul's describing here. It's not like you take a year out and then you go and volunteer somewhere and you make a difference in in some part of the world. Some of you may have done that as teenagers. That's not what Paul's describing here. What he's describing is the idea that God's power is at work through you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the idea is that you serve others by mediating God's power to them to bring about that transformation. 
I was, I was having a, a conversation with someone this week, and we, we were talking about our ideas of conversion. And, and again, it's been very fashionable, and it's not wrong, the idea that conversion has to be a gradual thing, and transformation is a gradual thing, and that you know, people work through things as they become Christians. But I also think sometimes, you know, we have to believe in real instantaneously conversion. My life was this way, and now it is this way because of the power of God that has brought transformation. It's not the whole story, but it's part of the story. And, and Paul is talking about this transformation, this power of God that can intervene, that brings about transformation. We're told in Acts 16 the story of how the gospel first came to Philippi, and we, we see the power of the gospel at work. It begins with a woman called Lydia. Paul arrives with Silas and Philippi, and uh, they, they weren't sure what to do. So on Sunday, uh, there may not have been a synagogue to go to, but they had heard that there were some Jewish women that were praying down by the river, so they went down to join them at the prayer meeting. And there they met a woman called Lydia. And, and Lydia was one of the, the, the new women of the, the Roman world. Caesar Augustus, after he'd beaten Brutus, he, he set up this empire, and suddenly he needed people to run it. He needed lots of aristocratic Romans, blue-blooded Romans, to send out as governors and soldiers and commanders and all sorts of things. And the problem was that the women in Rome weren't that keen on having babies. And so he had a bit of a problem. And he had to get his population, his demographics up. So he came up with this brilliant idea. He said to the women, he said, if you produce uh, three kids and you get a bonus for four, I can't remember exactly what the, but three kids or four kids, uh, then what happens is you get to inherit the whole lot. So up until that point, women could own nothing. Her husband died, it went to his brother or to the son if he was old enough. Women got nothing. And now suddenly he said, you produce the kids, you can keep all the money. This was a massive incentive. And, uh, and as Roman men tended to marry after military service, they were usually in their 40s or 45, marrying young teenagers who usually had produced their three or four kids by 20 if they survived, and their husbands then duly died. And this left a whole bunch of women that were running vast estates, running companies, running households, running everything. These are the women that you read about in the New Testament. These are the women that were the backbone for the new Christian movement. And here we have Lydia, one of these women. She has a company that does dine in Philippi. She probably had loads of people working for her, and they said, come stay in the house. She's able to make all these decisions now because she's one of these empowered women whose husbands probably died. She becomes the founding member of the church in Philippi. Then a few days later, there's a fortune teller, a young slave girl, who's possessed by the devil, and she's following around Paul and Silas, saying, these men are here to show you the way of salvation, or that's what it says in our translations. But if you look closely, it actually says, a way of salvation. And uh, eventually, after hearing Christianity was just a way of salvation, Paul, after three or four days, he casts out the demon. He upsets everybody in Philippi because she made money from the fortune-telling. He ends up in jail. Remember what he gets beaten up and ends up in jail. And you remember how Paul responds when he's there in jail? He's there with Silas and they're singing. <laughs> you go, Paul, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what 
what's wrong with you? Why you, you should be feeling bad here. This is really bad. If you end up in a Roman jail in Philippi, your mission was a failure. <laughs> okay, that really is not where you want to be. And yet they're worshiping God. Why are they worshiping God? Because we're serving God and we're seeing a difference. We've just seen a fortune teller delivered from the power of the devil. We've just seen Lydia and her whole household brought to Christ. We've just seen the start of God's transforming power. And yeah, we're beaten up and we're in jail and it doesn't look good, humanly speaking, for us at this juncture. But we believe God is working. And remember, the power of God comes again. The jail shakes. The, 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 the jailer rushes in. And, and he thinks everybody's escaped. They all stayed. That's amazing. I mean, that, that element of the story. Why did they all stay? But they stayed. They didn't run. They stayed. And the jailer comes and he shouts to Paul and he says, What must I do to be saved? That, by the way, that's an evangelistic opportunity. And, and, and Paul says to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes a Christian and his whole family gets baptized. You know, suddenly another person, as God's transforming power is moving, and he is seeing God making a difference. And he, and he saw the church of Philippi begin like that. And then, that's what he can then say, because the power of God is at work. He says, you know, I know he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, the reason he has a confidence is because he knows that as he serves others, it's not about him making the difference. It's about him becoming a conduit for the power of God to make a difference. And so he says, I know when God began to transform you through the service that I was rendering, God's power is now released, and I'm confident that that power that is at work in you right now will take you to where God wants you to be, even so you may be facing persecution. I'm sure people were sitting there going, but Paul, you're in jail. <laughs> you know, understand, your life's on the line. You're probably on death row. You're certainly about to stand before the emperor. This is not good, Paul. <laughs> and yet you're talking about the power of God bringing us to this point where we have an assurance that God will deliver us. You see, when you orientate your life with the narrative that Paul has, you see the power of God, you see yourself as a servant, and God's power working through you to bring transformation to others. You know, this week it's interesting to ask ourselves, you know, when we wake up on Monday morning, what's the narrative that's going to run our lives? Oh, no, I've got to feed the kids again. Oh, no, I've got to go to work again. Oh, no, I've got to walk the dog. What's the narrative that's going to run? Or is it I'm waking up with a new week before me, with the possibility of finding people to serve so that God can work through me as a vehicle of his power to see his transforming power at work. And you know what? It might be a bad week, but God's transforming power is still going to be mediating and flowing through me to see transformation. That's the mentality that Paul began with, and I think he invites us to have that same mentality. He then goes on to talk about two things. Do these very quickly. How, why, why is Paul like this? Well, well, two things. The first thing is, he cares. You know, he expresses in verse 7, I have you in my heart. You know, what, what's the difference in Paul and us? Well, Paul cares about other people. A lot of us just don't care about others. 
you know, we, we care about those that might affect us, but really care about others? Paul really cared. You know, and, and, and the, the heart of Jesus and the love of Jesus was flowing through Paul. He cared, and that's why he was a servant, because he cared for others, and he wanted to see a difference, because he realized that there are people out there who desperately, and lots of them, who desperately need to know the transforming power of God in their lives. And he was desperate to go and serve them, because he really cared. And that was the driver. Again, it's challenging on Monday morning. Who are we caring about as we wake up and start our weeks? And because he cared, he did something else. He prayed. Again, our prayer lives are indicative of lots of things, but one of the things they're indicative of is of what we care about. You know, some of us only ever pray when something bad happens. You know, we walk in and kick the bed or something and stub our toe. Oh, Lord, please heal my toe. It's sore. You know, it hurts. Please resolve my issue. That's how we pray. And often it just reflects the things that we care for. How often do we really pray for others? Lord, may that person really see your transforming power. Lord, really make a difference. See, he prays because he cares. And, and, he, he, and he prays. He prays for three things. He prays for love. He says, may they know that love, that love that makes us servants that desires to see God's power at work. And then he prays that that love won't be alone, but we will also have a knowledge. And when he means knowledge, he doesn't mean university degrees. He means an experience of God that lets us understand the power of God at work in our lives. And that's what he means by knowledge. It's the word gnosis. And, and what he's saying is, may we have a love for others and then have such an encounter with you and understand the way that you permeate every part of our life and every breath that we breathe and how you are working in the world that we will live holy lives or we will make the right decisions for holiness. That we will live the way that you want us to live. See, this is the narrative Paul wants us to be waking up with Monday morning. A narrative which says, Lord, I want to care the way you care. I want to care the way you care for the world and for those around me. Lord, I want to know your heart and I want to experience and know you in a deeper way and understand how you are working in my life so that I don't miss it because I'm so preoccupied with my own stuff rather than your stuff so that I miss what you're doing and how you're working. And I'm so narrowed in in some negative thing or a wrong thing that I don't see how you're working the amazing things that you're doing. Lord, help me so see that that I will make right choices as I seek to live a life with you as my Lord, truly calling you my master as I serve others in Christ's name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Paul, and we thank you for the challenge of what we see in Philippians. We thank you for the way that Paul thought for the way that he perceived his own life, for the way that he deeply loved and cared for those around him, and for the way that he understood the power of God that was at work through him 
to bring transformation. Lord, I pray that for each one of us, that you would help us to change the narratives that we run. Lord, help us to move towards a Christ-focused narrative that is about being a servant people, serving others and being a vehicle for your transforming power in the world. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.